0: And welcome to the second episode of Making Art Accessible from Unlimited. This week we're talking about the limits of access, the practicalities, tensions and conflicts of being fully accessible. Is it ever possible? First up, we hear from Joe Bannon.
1: I'm Joe Bannon and I'm an artist working mainly in performance and choreography. Um, and a lot of my work is based around the senses and the ways that our senses interact with our, the way we see the world, feel the world, and how they shape our identity. So I made a work um, as part of the Unlimited programme in 2015 called Exposure. And Exposure is a one-to-one performance. So it's me and an individual audience member, and we repeat the work for each individual audience member. Um, And exposure is looking at um, some of the ways that my identity interacts with being highly visible, so being a person with albinism who is um, very visible in public space, and also questions about invisibility and the way that my low vision makes parts of the world kind of invisible to me. One of the inspirations for the work was about the eye examination and the moment in an eye exam where they turn off the lights and you're alone with this stranger. And so the experience for an audience is that you are in a very, very, very dark room to the point where you can't really sense your hand in front of your face um, and that you are guided through a kind of narration of my voice that you listen to on headphones and there are moments of exposure, which by which I mean there are moments when I am lit or I show you a photograph in torchlight, or there's things that, that you that kind of kind of flash upon your vision. The work is dealing a lot with vision and of about difference and disability, but it was um, quite a difficult point in the work when we were thinking about how to make that work accessible for. Audiences who couldn't use the headphones. So that's actually a range of people, but um, primarily we were thinking about people who are deaf or hard of hearing, and how to make, how could we make that work accessible? So some of the things, so the work had audio description for visually impaired audience members. Um, there were lots of access provisions we did do in terms of the spaces we chose and how we hosted people in and out of the work. And we were able to find some solutions for some people with hard of hearing uh, experience, such as people using um, particular types of hearing aids. We found this system that replaced headphones with a neck loop. What became a kind of ongoing conflict was around um, how deaf audience members could experience the work, because most of it's in in pitch black, which means that any cut form of BSL or captioning couldn't really work. And then also BSL, because it's one-to-one, it felt very important that the work um, was just me and the audience member. It was difficult. We tried lots of different things and got feedback on things like giving the transcript of the text either before or after the show. Um, we tried giving documentation, which we were able to put captions on um, to audience members. And I think those things were helpful, but they were not the work. And I think for me, it it came down to this question about what is the kind of alchemy or the particularities of this work? And if you take away one of them, which is this real-time narration, is that work Um, good enough to, or does it convey enough and eventually we made the decision that it wasn't and so for the live work we couldn't offer the work to people who couldn't either use the neck loop or the headphones and that was a pretty sticky realisation to come to for someone you know access is really important to me I need access to be in the world but also I want my work to be fully accessible i guess what i was concerned with was not fudging it and making a kind of clear decision and being able to stand behind that decision that this particular work wasn't accessible because we tried a number of things and they weren't communicating enough about the work i mean i think it can be an incredibly useful dilemma to find yourself in because it pushes your kind of creative muscle and rigor to try and find ways to try and think about what is the central idea that's being shared here and therefore maybe there are different forms of how it might be shared. I think also you have to work backwards and think about the the people that you're making that work for or that who aren't easily served by that work and bring them into that process. I definitely had an experience of anxiety that um that to not give access to in every way to every audience member was this um kind of yeah was this awful decision or this wrong decision or um and I think that that I interrogated that and it passed but I think that On the one hand, I think it was necessary that you should care if you're excluding people from your work or from your building or from wherever. And then I think that the other thing, and I think it was talking with the Unlimited team and Joe and other members of the team to, like, hold it more lightly. I think that what can sometimes stop people trying to make their work or their services or whatever accessible is this fear that they're gonna do it wrong and that is that you know, on occasion that can be used to challenge yourself and make yourself push yourself but actually quite often it makes people shut down and become defensive and not try and so yeah I just wanted to talk about recognizing that feeling in myself of feeling like yeah, that I'm a bad person, I'm a bad maker. I haven't found the solution. And just to kind of maybe allow that as part of the process. Yeah, and to not let that those kind of fears of getting access wrong stop you from attempting to do it.
0: Thanks, Jo. That was really, really interesting. So good to hear somebody really thinking about the way that access impacts their own practice and their own personal experience as a disabled person. Next I spoke to Nikki Miles-Wilding, co-artistic director and CEO of Jar Jar Fest, which is a disabled people's arts organisation based and run from Liverpool. Hi Nikki. Hello Mandy, how are you? I'm all right, love yourself? Yeah, not bad, thank you. And nice to be speaking to someone who's working from the motherland. Well, you say working from the motherland. I'm actually working from Manchester. Oh, of course, yeah. But, you know, (laughs) let's let let, let that go, shall we? Yeah, yeah. OK, so, Nikki, Dada Fest has got a long legacy of working with disabled artists and also providing access for audiences. Coming in fairly recently, how are you approaching and maintaining building on this legacy well, Grace and I joined the organisation
2: March 21. Legacy is the right word because there's a a really high standards to which we're, we're you know we t- we're coming in uh that's already been at dada for, so for us to kind of feel like the weight on our shoulders the kind of legacy of this organization is massive i'm sat here talking to one of the people that was kind of one of the first founders of it back in the day uh arts integrated merseyside so it is that thing of knowing that you know I am always think I'm sitting on the shoulders of giants uh, anyway, so then it's thinking around that development of that work. We're building on what has already been at Dada and kind of talking to artists around, and audiences, around what makes what would make the work even more accessible? Um, so for us, having just had our Scratch Festival in November, uh, we had it as an in-person event. We also had it live streamed and then available on demand, which was new to us, uh, new to Dada, new to us working there, thinking around how are we going to make that accessible? Um, because that's the key, isn't its Is, Since the pandemic, we're working in different ways. We're working quite hybrid to make sure that we aren't Forgetting our audiences and our artists. So for us, yeah, that was key, thinking how can we how can we integrate access in that way? I don't think we got it right. Uh, I think we did an okay job. But I think there's a lot that then we think about and take on to the next festival of how we make it better.
0: Um, I wanted to ask there's a, you know there's an approach that tries to give everyone that sees access as giving everyone the same experience. And there's the approach that says actually, you need to give people different experiences because they have different access needs. What do you think about that? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I always have this, whenever I'm making work,
2: I always had have in my head, what's the experience for deaf audiences? What's the experience for visually impaired audiences? What's the experience for any audience? And I think we have to remember that art, art's really interesting because we don't expect everybody to have the same experience because what you see in a piece of theatre will be different from what I get from a piece of theatre. What you see in a painting is different from what I get from a painting. Therefore, I always think how... The beauty of Access is how is this story going to be told? Because everybody's going to get a different experience from it. This is a really muddled way of doing this, but I think there's something around... Like, I always think of making my work for visually impaired audiences. I'm always... Chloe Clark said to me, who is a brilliant visually impaired actor, audio description consultant, it's that thing of thinking of it like a radio drama. So straight away I'm like, yes, this is what a visually impaired audience needs. And then I know from, like, uh, working with Ali Briggs or um, Hemi Bahane or EJ, of that element of what's needed for a visual element. Um, how, how do I, how do I in, um, integrate BSL? How do I have creative captioning? How does that fit the aesthetic? Therefore, just being aware that people are going to have different experiences. But I would also say, I think... Sometimes we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to make it fully accessible. And sometimes that's where we fail, because we haven't done that to like a hundred percent. And I don't know if we ever can, being
0: completely honest. No, I think um. that's I think that's true actually because I think, you know, there's a very basic thing which you can't please everyone all the time. And I think Aye. that brings me actually to my next question, which is actually, you know, I think it's fair to acknowledge that occasionally, you know, access needs actually bring conflict, conflict mm-hmm. with each other. I mean, <coughs> have you, what's your approach to this? I love it because <laughs> I'm like, oh, is
2: this? Yes, it's an absolute head, like, Bleh, but it's around. What's my creative opportunity here? Can I make it work? Um, like, for instance, when I was doing "Forest of Forgotten Discos" um, that Jackie Hagan wrote. Um, up at um contact in hope miller manchester there was one point where we had the character of alexa um who was the knowledge of the forest see what we did there where um we had her uh audio describing what was happening on stage and because it was for young audiences it was in the style of like it's a 30 second makeover type feel and we had her facing the audience talking about it describing it um but nobody was signing it so what was really interesting was um some uh, bsl users came to see the show and were like they got really irate at that point they were like what's going on nobody's signing what's happening and then i was like oh like really angry at myself because i was like of course they can see lips moving but they don't know what's coming out and I'm like, but this is for the visually impaired audience, because the deaf audience are getting it from seeing it visually. So I was like, okay, how do I solve this? I just turned the actor upstage. So the audience couldn't see her face. They could still hear her describing it. And then for the deaf audiences, she was just able to point because they were seeing what was happening. So it's around going, how how can I fix this? Um I would say what I would really love to be able to make it work better is like a six-week rehearsal process, making theatre, so you can fully take it on. But I think it's also about having those lived consultants in the room. Um, And I would say, it is incredibly difficult. um, But for me, that is the creative challenge. We have our own impairments, which doesn't automatically mean we have the knowledge of everybody else's lived experience either. And as I say, we aren't given a magic handbook of everything around being disabled. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't mean that we become these big, like, uh, experts in everything. We're I'm learning. I know what my lived experience is, but I'm still learning. Uh, and I know I'm going to get things wrong, but I'm. it's that thing of just... Being interested in making the work and telling and
0: the stories and making the art that we want to make. So you're involved, obviously, commissioning artists and companies. So um, in within those uh, both in terms of choosing artists and also negotiation with artists, their project. Where does ac- how does access factor in at that stage? From those initial conversations is usually is where
2: i'd like them to happen they don't always they haven't necessarily happened and that's been part of um you know being a new part of an organization and still trying out uh but for me now working with the artist that presented work at scratch it's uh and i've asked them this recently of thinking how they're going to um integrate creative access Into the development of their pieces and that's what we work with them on and then we start thinking who do we need to kind of bring in to enable them to have those conversations Uh, because i i do i do think as disabled artists we do have a responsibility
0: of making our work accessible you know i kind of i i agree but i can imagine there are people who would not necessarily agree with that you know that, that, that it's not an artist's responsibility and i think that's a very interesting you know debate for the future really of the sector you know yeah. how much is the responsibility of the artist and how much is the responsibility of the venue for instance in promoting access or you know the production company themselves mm-hmm. or whatever but I think if you're an artist making work then I would say lean into what the creative opportunity of it is but again as you came back to and I, we we mentioned earlier I think you know that it is valid for artists to have to say you know well actually if we do it in that way or we have this layer on that makes what I'm trying to do the story I'm trying mm-hmm. to create the message I'm trying to the vision that I have the piece I want to make quite different mm-hmm. you know and it you know, without the artist, there is no piece of work in a yeah. way. So it's, an, it's a balancing act, I think, isn't it?
2: I think, I think it's a balancing it. and I think it's around really exploring what those other... what. And I hear what you're saying, but I think it's also around exploring what those other creative opportunities could be. If it's not going to work within the vision of the piece, what could an alternative offer be that sits alongside the original piece?
0: Well, thank you very much, Nikki. That's been fascinating as ever and, and fabulous to talk to you and um, good luck with everything and I'm, I'm really glad that you and Grace there at Dada Fest and, and you know taking taking the organisation to the next stage. Thank you very much, that means a lot, thank you. Thanks Nikki, always good to hear your thoughts. Next, we spoke to artist Vijay Patel who was commissioned by Unlimited in 2021
3: Hi, I'm VJ. Um, I am a performance artist and theatre maker. Um, I make uh, solo work, um, which is often autobiographical. Um, stems from uh, my intersectional identities and uh, how I how I kind of see the world and how how the world sees me. I guess up until the pandemic. Uh, I was um, making work that was touring across the UK Um, and then when the pandemic hit I um, changed my focus to um, working in ways which is advocating for neurodivergent disabled people um, and creating uh, hopefully better conditions for them to work in. So I was recently commissioned by Unlimited um, as part of their R&D awards um, to start a project called Brotherly, Otherly, Disorderly, and the premise of the piece is to work was to work with my younger sibling who is also autistic. The project is about brotherly care, um, allyship, um, and how we navigate a, a world really um, as autistic individuals. So, uh, in terms of I guess access and maybe conflicting access. The process of uh, making um, an access rider for, for Jaden as a young person was uh, quite difficult, I think, for both of us. There was a lot to kind of get through um, and work through, especially for someone who doesn't really understand access, and that, you know, as, young, as a young person, is not really, like, an uncommon thing <laughs> for a young person to not know what access is um, and what it can do. Um, But uh, I was utilising my kind of like skill set and expertise in the arts to make that for him. So I got a much better understanding about what his access requirements are. Having used an access rider myself for a number of years, um, I'm quite aware of like how much they change and how much I have to regularly review it and update as my access requirements change. We um, then realised that. Uh, obviously the the the, the, uh, the access requirements that we have are so kind of individual uh, and they really rely on working practices and how you work together so it, it definitely becomes um, challenging um, when you're trying to navigate holding another person's access requirements and your own um, if you're in a creative process that is quite individual um, that is quite self-led um, uh, I think we were constantly holding that for each other, which really made the show and what we were making uh, much uh, richer. There's there's constant work to be like, that is that is being done um, when you're making things accessible. You're kind of constantly re-evaluating how things are going, checking in, um, making sure that it's it's constantly happening and it doesn't just get forgotten about. Um, so. With that being at the forefront there's a lot of um i guess uh, brain energy going on when uh when you're thinking about okay are my needs being met is Jaden's needs being met and he's probably doing the same thinking as well but from a younger person's point of view yeah so um in terms of uh what people would expect what access people would expect from a from a Vijay Patel show, um, I'd say um, historically, my previous shows sometimes I leave um, was kind of looking at how we, how I can create some extra provisions for me as a solo performer on stage. So um, the one thing, and the and the in the name of the show, is that I might leave at some point, and having the door open creates uh, a purposeful relaxed performance and that there's nothing anyone can do about it because it's the premise of the show, it's actually built in to the show. So um, there's that access provision there in the content of the work and I think for me it's about embedding that within content so it's not necessarily about the space that I'm in, it's actually about the show itself being accessible so I'm trying to always think of new ways in which the show itself and its content can look after um, myself, uh, Jaden, the audiences um, and ensuring that there is, I guess, access provisions for those that that need it. I am always looking for sort of new ways and making sure that I look at the space that I am in and making sure that I can kind of think about okay, wh- what, are the, what are the kind of um, main requirements that I can look after Um, and then if there are any kind of additional requirements try within my kind of capacity as a as an individual um, try and make sure i'm accounting for all of those like more nuanced kind of um, access requirements and i think i I use the word nuanced because i see uh, the way i see access is that it is very individual Uh, there's a reason why a lot a lot of my work during the pandemic has been advocating access riders and why i've been sort of talking about them a lot uh, online and doing workshops on them because I see those as really fundamental to understanding individual uh, requirements. And you know, in the similar way of how you know writers historically you know stem from like musicians and what you know musicians would have on uh, on on tour and stuff like that, you know for drinks and whatever, I think there's something uh, about the term access rider, which really makes it, feel like a fundamental practice. It's this fundamental thing that you do before a gig, before a show, before whatever it is that you're doing. The decision to make my Access Rider public on my website was, um, I would say, fairly recent. Um, I've been practicing with an Access Rider now for about three or four years. And um, the impact it's had is um, quite phenomenal, really. I've I've said this to quite a few people in the past who have asked me about um, often questions like you know how people have responded once it's been sent to them Um, because I used to send it in a different way which would be like an attachment on an email um, quite often to new collaborators who I haven't worked with to say here's my Access Rider, please read it and also send me an email back when you've read it so I know you've read it and the response usually is like um, it's, it's quite um, uh, overwhelming, really, because you give something so personal to a, another person, and hope that they receive it in in a way with that is with care. And um, uh, quite often, I've had um, responses back from people who which say, uh, "I, you know, I'm, I'm really." Um, Really like moved by this this rider, and I'm really moved by like what it says, and it's really helpful for me as a as an organizer of an event or a person who um, is 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 on the other side of working with me who um, feels more equipped to support me. For me, it's it's about giving clarity. Um, it's about limiting the emotional labor for me to have to keep telling people. Um, it's a thing that can can exist and communicate that without me having to say it to every person I meet. I would say the response has been really positive and um, I've never really had anyone come back otherwise. I think it's always been a positive experience. The way I'm thinking about this is if we say that we are fully accessible and that we've achieved access and accessible for everyone then there's no room for growth, there's no room for nuance, there's no room for new things that happen. People are disabled in so many different ways that I, I, I really believe that we're not going to be able to be fully accessible. We can only um, keep striving to, to better ourselves and keep striving to do better. And I think it's about the persistence to be better and to do better to support disabled artists because um, generations after us need to see that, that that's a constant um, work ethic that, that we do.
0: Thanks, Vijay. That was really illuminating. And finally, I spoke to Damien Coyle, CEO of University of Atypical. Hello, Damien.
4: Hey, i Nice to speak to you.
0: Yeah, and yourself, love, and yourself. Um, first of all, I'd just like to ask you to tell us a little bit about the organisation and its work.
4: We're the University of Atypical and um, we were originally called the uh, Arts and Disability Forum, but we rebranded about three years ago. So we're a disability-led organisation, so all the staff, freelancers, workshop leaders, our trustees are all um, disabled and we offer a range of uh, support for deaf, disabled and neurodiverse um, artists, and we also have a developmental role for deaf, disabled, and neurodiverse audiences as well. So some of the things that we offer are grants which are called the Deaf, Disabled Artist Support Fund grants, and we've been providing grants over the last 10 years for, to support artists to create new work In the last year, because of COVID, we've been distributing increased levels of funding. So by the time that the current financial year is over, we will have delivered somewhere in the region of about um, uh, £150,000 in grants to deaf, disabled, neurodiverse artists here in Northern Ireland. So that's one element of it. We have um, the Atypical Gallery, which is uh, the only exhibition space in Ireland is solely dedicated to showcasing the work of deaf, disabled and neurodiverse artists. The other thing that we do is that we run um, an annual arts festival called Bounce and that's a weekend of um, arts events and that's again the idea is to showcase the work of deaf, disabled and neurodiverse artists, creative practitioners people from dance, theatre, DJs, the whole gamut of art forms. Um, and we try to make those events as accessible and inclusive as is possible. So that's just a small bit of what we do.
0: I suppose that brings me round to something. How, how does the organisation... Can the organisation um, negotiate examples of, you know, creative decisions by artists? Maybe impacting certain aspects of access issues
4: the only conflict that we 've ever had well sorry the only conflict we had recently with the artistic integrity and access requirements was actually uh, was at during bounce uh, were after after the piece was completed, an audience member came up to me and said that um they found uh, they couldn't really um, engage with the piece because they found the audio description intrusive. Now, um, the issue in this case was the size of the theater space and it didn't lend itself to to having the audio describer located far enough away from the space to be able to see what was happening and, and close enough for them to be able Um, to be heard by the audience members so they were actually up in the gantry along with the technical crew but you could hear them speaking into the mic you know and obviously the audience member was wearing the um, headset so it's one of those things we've added it to the long list of learning that we compile and address every time we put on an event so next time we look at different options, including using different, um, different venue for uh, dance events. So those are just some of the practical things, but um, we don't really um, experience conflict you know, in terms of access.
0: I was just listening to your, what you've said. It was great, and um, that makes me think that actually what we should be talking about is tension in terms of access requirements rather than conflict, which yes. uh, is a very proactive thing, whereas the tensions are things that could be resolved, which brings me neatly round, I have to say, to a kind of, I'm going to be slightly contentious here and say there is an approach to access that tries to, that, whose philosophy is underpinned by the notion that it tries to give everyone the same experience as opposed to acknowledging people's differing experiences
4: How do you feel about this? I understand the ambition of trying to get to a point where everyone has the same experience, but I'm not sure if it's achievable and because disabled people aren't one homogenous group. It's a collection of individuals who experience the world and experience art in their own unique way. Um, I'm hearing impaired and neurodiverse And I know that my experience of a music event or literature reading a book differs from that of a colleague who is visually impaired, you know. um, I went to an event in Prague just before lockdown. And one of the things we went to see was this um, sensory installation which was designed by blind people. And blind people were leading people through the space, and the space was full blackout, so there was no light. Um, And so your guide was, um, in our case, it was an English-speaking blind person. Now, I was with someone who was blind, another person who had mobility problems, and myself was hearing impaired. I really liked the experience. But because I couldn't hear the instructions of the guide, I kept walking into things. Um, The visually impaired person didn't like the experience at all because they thought it was um, not uh, getting across the intent of the piece, which was to make people understand what it was like to be visually impaired. And then the person with mobility problems they just had um, real issues manoeuvring around the confines, the physical confines of the space. So that, that was a, the three of us, three disabled people, who had three very different experiences of it, you know. Now, we do our best to ensure that audience members can have an experience um, at an event, and they can experience in a way that meets their individual access requirements. But we also know that experience is going to be different for each audience member.
0: I think, finally, what I'd just like to ask, it's been fantastic to hear, honestly, about all the amazing work the organisations have been taking. Have you seen, and has the organisation seen, you know, an increase in in general arts provision in terms of access in Northern Ireland?
4: Organisations are um, addressing it because we have been lobbying for it and campaigning for it. We do quite a lot of work uh, lobbying and campaigning with the Arts Council. And I have to say, we have had very good response from the Arts Council here in Northern Ireland. And it's the same with the Department of Communities. We actually have a minister here called Deirdre Hargey and she is really supportive of access and inclusion that really helps but it's it's one of those things, Mandy, you know, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we'll be 100% satisfied because things change all the time and people's requirements change all the time and there will be new things that will come out, new developments, you know, that will enhance access and inclusion, you know, but to me, the battle that's always going to be there is one about attitudinal change, you know, and about society's acceptance of people uh, with disabilities as being equal. That's going to be an ongoing battle.
0: But would you think it would be fair to say that the University of typical has had an impact?
4: Well, I, I don't know if you knew uh, Chris Ledger, who was our Former chief executive, uh, Chris was a dynamo. There's no other way to describe her. Um, but um, she was uh, superb at winning, you know, people over to uh, the cause. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, she could be radical and she could be demanding. Uh, and she could be argumentative, but she had great foresight and vision, um, and she could turn on the charm as well. So, um, a lot of where we are in terms of um, acceptance and um, making the case for arts and disability and for access and inclusion has to go to the work that uh, Chris did.
0: Thank you, Jamie. Wonderful to hear and, and be reminded of the, the absolute warrior queen that was Chris Ledger and how, you know, how, how much we, we all acknowledge how wonderful she was and what a good loss She and her passing is to all of us. It's been great to speak to you, Damien. Thank you so much for your time. You too. Thanks, Damien. That was great always good to hear a perspective from another area of the united kingdom so i'd just now like to thank all our guests it's been really great to have a proper discussion amongst disabled practitioners and disabled leaders to actually discuss the nuts and bolts and the limitations of access which has always been our holy grail next time we'll be looking at technology and access talking to practitioners and organizations about how and if they use technology to improve and enhance access both for audiences and artists' work. So see you then. Bye!
3: This podcast has been produced by Unlimited.
1: Unlimited is delivered by Shape Arts and Arts Admin, and is funded by Arts Council England, Creative Scotland, Arts Council of Wales and British Council.